Good morning again. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28, verses 11 through 31. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. Acts 28, verses 11 through 31, which brings us to the end of the book of Acts. Before we uh, read together, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you and to your word because we know that your word is powerful. We know that uh, your word will not return to you void or empty, but will accomplish everything for which you sent it forth. We know that your word stands forever, and uh, though the whole world passes away, your word will not pass away. We know that we need your word more than we need bread to sustain us. And so, Father, we come to hear from you. We come to receive from you. We pray that you would teach us, uh, that you would soften our hearts and open our minds, allow us to receive your truth this morning. Uh, Work it deeply into us that it would change us and transform us and conform us to the image of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 28, beginning with verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Patchouli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, uh, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. And after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing these chains. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to the sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. 
For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I get easily discouraged. I look around at my life. I look around at the world. I look around at the struggles and trials and difficulties, and they just seem overwhelming. I begin to feel like there is no way out. I begin to feel uh, like things can't get any better. I begin to feel trapped. And often I don't feel too much different about the gospel. I know in my own head that the gospel is unstoppable, but I feel like there is not much hope. The world is a mess, and not much is going to change that, I think. There are too many obstacles to the gospel's progress, not the least of which is my own hard heart and the hard hearts of those whom, who don't know Jesus. And so I end up a little bit hopeless, right? wishing that God would do something, but not really believing that he will and being blind to, to whatever he actually is doing around me even now. Well, the, the, the Luke who wrote the book of Acts was not discouraged in the slightest. In fact, I'm realizing that one of the key themes of Acts as we come to the end of the book is that despite opposition, the gospel prevails. The, the book ends on a, a counterintuitive yet a triumphant note. Paul in chains the gospel unhindered. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because Jesus said to his disciples that on the rock of the apostolic message, he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Which at the very least means Jesus is building his church and whatever opposition there might be, it cannot stand against the power of the gospel. No, Luke the physician, uh, Luke the companion of Paul, had hope in God's work in the world and hope in the power of the gospel to complete that work. And so this morning, we're going to look at our hope. Uh, you can find your outline on the back of the bulletin uh, if you want to follow along or take notes there. We have three points there. We're going to talk about our Jewish hope, one final warning, and the unstoppable gospel. So first, our Jewish hope. You know, Paul finally makes it to Rome. He got to Jerusalem almost three years ago. He was arrested and jailed, tried and found innocent. But then he spent the next two years in a jail cell waiting for a release that never came. He finally appeals to Caesar and is shipped off to Rome. The ship tries to beat the winter impasse but fails. They're therefore shipwrecked at sea and washed up on an island. After three months waiting for the winter season to pass, they board another ship where they resume their, their nautical course. And after a few more journeys and delays and stops here and there, Paul is finally greeted by some brothers from the church at Rome who actually come out to meet him. And then he finally comes to Rome. 
He's allowed to stay in his own house, chained to a Roman soldier. It's a kind of first century house arrest. And at this point, Paul calls together the local Jewish leaders. And Paul wants to make a few things clear. First, he says he's done nothing against our people. Second, he says he's done nothing deserving death, that is, nothing against the Roman law. Then he says he has, he has no plans of a countersuit, right? That's what he says in verse 19, where he says he has no charge to bring against my nation. He's saying just because they're bringing a charge against me doesn't mean I'm going to bring a charge against them, which we can understand why he might have to say that. To the contrary, he says it's because of the hope of Israel that he was wearing this chain, verse 20. And notice what Paul is doing, right? He, he is seeking to put himself on the side of his Jewish brothers. In fact, he calls them brothers in verse 17. He's done nothing against them, he says. He has nothing against them. And it's for their own hope that he is in chains. See, once again, we find what we've seen throughout the book of Acts, that the gospel message is specifically put in terms of Israel's story. It is for the hope of Israel that Paul is in chains. What is this hope of which Paul speaks? Well, look at verse 23. The Jewish leaders decide that Paul is actually worth hearing out, and so they appoint a day, and they come back in even greater numbers, and from morning till night, he explains the gospel. He testifies to the kingdom of God and tries to convince them about Jesus, both from the law and from the prophets. And what we find then uh, about the hope of Israel is three things here. Uh, first is that the hope of Israel is found in Moses and the prophets, which shouldn't be too surprising, but, but this is Paul's message. It is from Moses and the prophets, which means that Paul is speaking the Christian message from the Old Testament. Anyone who suggests that, that Christians have sort of gotten beyond the Old Testament don't really understand the new the new is simply a fulfillment of the old. The old is simply the promise of the new. They go hand in hand. As, as we said a few weeks ago, right, the, the discontinuity between the two, between the old and the new, is not a discontinuity of disagreement, but a discontinuity of fulfillment. Right? The change that takes place between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the change that takes place between the planting of a seed and the growth of a tree, not that between digging up the tree and putting it in a parking lot. Right? It's an organic growth, not a change of course. As Paul put it back in Acts 26, what happens in the New Testament is nothing but what Moses and the prophets said would happen. What God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled. And so Paul here in chapter 28, verse 23, spends the whole day seeking to convince his Jewish brothers from what we call the Old Testament, from Moses and the prophets, of the truthfulness of his message. Well, what else do we learn about this hope of Israel from verse 23? Paul spends that day testifying to the kingdom of God. The hope of Israel is the kingdom of God. Now, this phrase isn't used very often in the Old Testament, but it was abundantly clear to all Jewish people what it referred to. Israel was God's kingdom. God was the king. And God ruled over his kingdom, actually through an earthly king, particularly David, right, at the high point, where God's kingdom was, there was justice and order and peace. Right? God's kingdom meant enemies subdued as David took out Goliath and the Philistines. God's kingdom meant justice administered as Solomon, David's son, wisely judged right from wrong in difficult cases. God's kingdom meant the land of Israel was at rest 
no threats from without, no threats from within. And in light of the brokenness of this present age, and, and when you turn to the last chapters of Isaiah, which we didn't read, but the last couple chapters, uh, God's kingdom means nothing less than a new creation. Isaiah 65 goes on to say, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. See, God promised to make all things new for his people. This new creation, uh, of course, wouldn't come out of nowhere. It, it comes as a result of the rule of God through David. That's what Isaiah promises. Uh, you know the great promises in Isaiah chapter 9 that we often read at Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David... And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so Paul uh, preaches the hope of Israel found in Moses and the prophets of the restoration of God's kingdom, the restoration of Israel, even the restoration of the whole creation, the renewal of all things. Now, the truth of the matter is, in and of itself, uh, this would not get Paul into much trouble. See, up to this point, he's only teaching what Moses and the prophets taught. He's just picking up on the promises of the prophets in the Old Testament. But right in the middle of verse 23 is the key to Paul's preaching. See, the hope of Israel is that the message of the law and the prophets of the coming of the kingdom of God that has come in Jesus. Paul's message, again, is, is only different from the Old Testament message in that he proclaimed that the kingdom had come that it had come in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. And so Paul does here the, the same thing he did in, back in chapter 17, when Paul went in uh, to a synagogue and on three Sabbath days, we're told in Acts 17, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So the hope of Israel is that the Christ, the Messiah, the, the Jewish king would come and bring the renewal of all things. And Paul preaches, this has happened in Jesus. Of course, the most difficult part for people to hear was how Jesus came. Jesus, as the Messiah, did not come conquering with a sword. He came conquering through the cross. He came like a helpless babe wrapped in rags and placed in a feeding trough. He came humble and meek, riding on a donkey. He came suffering and accused and crucified. See, this is where Paul's message became offensive. Nobody wants their hero to be the loser. But in this life, from a human perspective, Jesus was the loser. He was convicted of a crime. Falsely even worse, and nailed to a cross and died. Paul's message, of course, is that through losing, Jesus won. Through the cross, Jesus conquered our enemies. And in the resurrection, the restoration has begun. The new creation has begun in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
And so we have this crucified conqueror who by his sinless life and substitutionary death has defeated death and won life for himself and for all who trust in him, a life which began in the resurrection. This is our Jewish hope, right? That God has begun to restore his people through the restoration of Jesus in his resurrection from the dead. And through him, by faith in him, we too can be restored to our Father and receive the hope of the new creation at Jesus' return. Right? Restoration now in our reconciliation to our Father, resurrection to come at Jesus' return. Or let me put it a, a little bit differently. In Jesus' resurrection, we have the hope that all things will be made new. Enemy, every enemy will be defeated, every oppressor will be put down, everything broken will be unbroken, everything that has grown old will be made young again. That is our hope. Sometimes people talk about it as, as shalom, right? using the Old Testament word for peace, perfect peace in every sphere of life when the reign of God comes in its fullness. All things made new. That's our hope. And that brings us to the warning. There is a warning here in this passage. If everything is so hopeful, what about the Jewish people? Paul preaches from morning till night. And then in verse 24, we read, Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. In fact, Paul's message brought not peace, but division, as Jesus said it would. The Jewish people disagreed among themselves, we're told in verse 25. And Paul's response is, your hearts are hard. Just as Isaiah said they would be, therefore the gospel is going to the Gentiles and they will listen. Now, Paul's not naive, right? He, he knew that not all the Gentiles would listen, but, but some did, many did, and many have throughout history. But what I want to ask now is, is why were the hearts of Israel, why were the hearts of the Jewish people so hard to the coming of the gospel? And the answer, of course, which, which is a danger to every one of us, to Jew and Gentile alike, is often bitter pride. There are at least two things that the Jewish people did not like about the gospel. The first, as we've said, is the idea of a crucified Messiah. That was an offense to them. Again, who wants a losing king, especially one who died in such a shameful way? And not just shameful, but according to the Old Testament, cursed. Cursed is he who dies on a tree, said Moses. And so the Jewish people rightly looked at Jesus and said, he was cursed by God. How can he be the Messiah? They rightly saw that he was cursed by God, but they wrongly drew from that, that he could not be the Messiah. Yes, the Messiah was cursed. He was cursed for us. He took the curse that we deserve. He took the curse that he might defeat it. And the resurrection proves that that's just what he did. He took the curse of death. He faced the sting of death. And then he rose from the dead. So that the curse for his people would be no more. But there's something else that, that the Jewish people didn't like. And we've seen it throughout the book of Acts. Chapter after chapter, in fact, especially more and more as we move on in the book of Acts, they did not like the idea that, that Gentiles unclean Gentiles were included in the Messiah's kingdom. Jesus talked a bit about this theme. Uh, it, it's there, at least implicit, in the parable of the prodigal son. The elder brother was angry. Why? 
because he always did the right thing. But the father threw a party for his younger brother who had squandered his inheritance. God was joyfully accepting sinners, and that made the rule keepers angry. How dare God accept them when we are the ones keeping the rules? It's there in Jesus' parable of the day laborers. Remember that one? Uh, the master hires workers throughout the day, but at the end of the day, those who worked the whole day got the same pay as those who worked one hour. And they were furious. Again, how dare God give to others what we have worked so hard to get for ourselves? You see, the idea that, that God would just give to sinful, unclean Gentiles what we have worked so hard for seemed like a slap in the face. And in a sense, God's grace is always a slap in the face. It's a slap in the face to those who think they have it all together. Grace is the idea that you don't have it all together, but I'll forgive your sins and love you anyway. That's God's radical grace, right? You, you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get your stuff together. You, you, you don't have to dress up or clean up. In fact, you can't. But God will, will do that when you come to him. He will wash away your sins. and He will clothe you in Jesus' glory. See, this idea that, that the Gentiles would come in, that they would actually be a part of Israel and share in their promises, that was a bit of a mystery. That's what Paul says anyway. He says it in Ephesians chapter 3. He talks about the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Gentiles, fellow heirs, same promises. And it, it, as mysterious as it was, though, it, it's, it, that doesn't mean it wasn't there all along. And Paul in Romans chapter 10 actually says it was. He quotes Deuteronomy and Isaiah to prove that God had foretold his grace to the Gentiles from the beginning. Of course, the point is, however clear or unclear it was in the prophets, it was an offense in the time of its fulfillment. And, and it wasn't just a, a moral issue, right? Yes, God accepts us in Christ as we are, but then he, he begins to transform us by his spirit, to make us new. But the problem that many Jewish people had in Paul's day was that this was true even of many, uh, and this is true even of many Jewish, was, was true of even many Jewish Christians in Paul's day, the problem that they had was that God would not require Gentiles to take on the Jewish law. That is, Gentiles did not have to become Jewish in order to become Christians. And that was the offense. And I guess the question for us in that is, well, where is our heart? When we see people coming into the church, people whom you think are below you or worse than you or less than you, do you ever turn up your nose? Do you ever think, who let them in? How did they get here? Do you ever think people ought to become like you in order to be accepted by God? If so, right, you haven't gotten grace yet, at least not fully. Don't harden your heart, right? Remind yourself, God has no cultural preference. We all stand condemned before the judgment seat of God, not because of our culture, but because of our sin. And however bad that person looks to me, my heart is 10 times worse. My heart is far worse than, than however anyone appears. And therefore, we thank God for his amazing grace. 
and he would forgive me, even me, with all of my sin and all of my brokenness. And so don't, don't despise the cross on the one hand, the shame of Christ, and don't despise grace. Embrace your need of grace and see the cross of Jesus as his glory, that he would go and love us by bearing our sin. So first, we looked at our Jewish hope and then this warning from Acts not to harden our hearts. Third, let's look at the unstoppable gospel. You know, Acts has one of those great endings that at first doesn't make any sense. The last eight chapters have been moving up to Paul's trial in Rome. Jesus promised that Paul would appear before Caesar. And now Paul is finally in Rome, and Luke says he's there for two whole years, which seems to imply an end point. But just when we seem to get to the climax, Paul appearing before Caesar, Luke doesn't tell us what happened. And there are lots of things, actually, Luke doesn't tell us here, but the chief is, what happened to Paul? Was Paul acquitted and set free? Was Paul convicted and put to death? Luke doesn't say. Now, it's possible that Luke didn't know. Right? Maybe Luke actually wrote before Paul's trial. That's one possibility. He, he knew of the two years, but he didn't know what happened next because it hadn't happened yet. Or maybe Luke had left Rome before he wrote and hadn't yet heard the results of Paul's trial. It's possible as well. Or maybe Luke knew, but it wasn't important to the story. See, we want to know what happened to Paul because we see Paul as the hero. But Paul is not the hero of this story. Jesus is. And everything we need to know is found in the last two verses. We're told that, that Paul lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul spends the next two years in prison, proclaiming the kingdom and teaching about Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Despite the best efforts of the world, the gospel is unhindered. That's the note on which Luke ends. Whatever happens to Paul is irrelevant. The gospel has made it to Rome and is being preached freely. Now, Paul is, in a way, presented as a victor. Uh, it's kind of interesting. When, when Roman victors returned to their city, the people came out to meet them. and They paraded with them into the city. And that was what the Christians did with Paul when he got to Rome, remember? Uh, he, he, they came out to meet him miles from Rome and apparently walked with him into the city. And yet Paul's victory march is in chains. The gospel triumphs even in the midst of our worldly loss. And so again, in, in the light of Luke's ending, it's not so much that Paul is the victor, but the gospel itself. We're not told what happens to Paul, at least what, what ultimately happens to Paul, because that's not important. What is important is that the gospel is proclaimed without hindrance. There, there are a couple things to note about this. The first is the power of the gospel itself, and the second is the necessity to preach it. I think we encounter a, a couple different errors when we think about the power of the gospel. Sometimes we use the gospel as a kind of magic phrase, right? If I just say the magic words or read the right verse, people will be saved. I mean here, especially when we fall into kind of a canned approach to the gospel, right? We, we memorize a gospel presentation and we think that that's enough. All we need to do is repeat these words. Now, I'm not against memorizing gospel presentations, don't get me wrong, but the gospel is not a magic spell. 
It's not simply to be repeated again and again in the hopes that, that if we just keep saying the same words, eventually it will sink in. The gospel is a message that we must strive to help our hearers understand the truths of the gospel. So we may come at it one way at one time and come at it another way at another time, striving to help people grasp the truths of grace. Of course, the other error is in thinking that the gospel needs our help. Right? We, we think, well, the gospel is true, but I need to, to add a little bit here or make it acceptable to 21st century minds there, or I need to use marketing techniques to pull people in or, or use music to get people in the right mood to believe or some such thing. But the gospel doesn't need our help either. Adding to the message really takes away from it. Altering it destroys it. There might be creative ways, sure, of, of getting the, the message before people. That's fine as long as we do it honestly and without changing or cheapening the message in the process. But that's a far cry from helping the gospel. The gospel doesn't need our help. Whatever obstacles there may be to the salvation of men and women, it is the gospel that itself that will overcome them. That is, it's the message of Jesus crucified and risen that will soften hard hearts and encourage the faint ones. So if the gospel is not a magic phrase on the one hand and it's doesn't need our help on the other, then what do we do with it? Well, the answer, of course, is we preach it. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul's preaching of the gospel took effort, toil, struggling. He compared the Christian life right to a harvest and a race and a, and a fight all things that take effort. Paul didn't sit back and think, the gospel is so powerful, it will do its work, so I don't have to. Neither did he think, if I don't make this palatable to people, no one will be saved. And he poured himself into preaching the raw, uncut message of grace. Now, you might be wondering, okay, that's great. What does that mean for me? I mean, clearly there's some direct application to, to me, right? I'm a preacher after all, so, so that's what I need to do, right? But, but you might be thinking, well, what about me? Maybe it means every Christian needs to quit their job and become a preacher. Right? Everyone should go into full-time ministry. And sometimes that's what Christians sound like, isn't it? I, I think so, right? I was talking to someone this week, and uh, they, they mentioned a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon, where Spurgeon says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter, and when people share that quote, it sounds like if you're not on the mission field, right, you're a failure as a Christian. Now, that's not actually what Spurgeon meant. And in fact, if you read the Bible, it speaks directly against such thinking. Romans chapter 12, Paul says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body... We have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And what's the point there? The point is God has given each of us different gifts. We shouldn't stand around looking at the gifts of others, wishing we had this gift or that. We're trying to be what God has not made us to be. Right? We should use the gifts that God has given to us. 
And what does that mean for our present point, right? Should all Christians drop what they're doing and go into full-time ministry or head out onto the mission field? Well, no. Should you? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, you need to ask God if he is calling you to devote yourself to full-time Christian work. But whether or not uh, you're to go onto the mission field or whether you're or not you're to go into full-time Christian work, here's what all of us should do. We should do everything for the glory of Christ. That is, seek to make Christ great in whatever you do. Let your light so shine before others that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, right? Use your gifts, whatever they are, to serve others both in the church and outside of it. And so do what you can for the furthering of the gospel. That, that was actually part of Spurgeon's point, right, if you read the context. Uh, when you read a bit further, he talked about those who use the tongue, preachers, those who preach with the tongue, and those who use the pen, and those who help others use the tongue, and those who spread that which others have written. Right? And the, the, his point is everyone has a role in the mission of the church, but not everyone has the same role. Though we do all have the same goal, to see the gospel go forth to the ends of the earth without hindrance to the glory of God. Now, what will move us to those ends? Well, the hope of Israel, right? The promise that God will make all things new. The thought that he will finish his work. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. And what's amazing is he will do it through us. That's his gift to us, that he allows us to participate in his work. God's gospel will go forth to the ends of the earth and God will be glorified. May God bless us as we pursue that end together. Let's pray. Our Father, our hope is in you. We know that apart from you, we can do nothing because Jesus said so. But we know that your spirit is powerful and your word is powerful and you will complete the work that you have begun. Father, we pray that you would, you would bless us by allowing us to be a part of that work and that you would use us as individuals and as a church to make your name great in all the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.